something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything In the silent light Of the Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. To get early access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. This episode will soon be available to everyone, courtesy of the new documentary film series, Four Died Trying, which premiered on November 22nd on Apple TV and other streaming services. If you were alive back then, or if you know your history, you may have noticed that back in the 1960s, the major US public figures who supported a more peaceful and just world well, they all got murdered under very suspicious circumstances. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert F. Kennedy. Four Died Trying explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as well as Robert F. Kennedy Sr., Filmed primarily from the vantage point of their children, close associates, and witnesses to their assassinations, the series considers the turning each of these men were making in the last year or so of their lives. Were they embracing ever broader conceptions of the struggle for peace, social change, and economic justice? And what forces may have stirred in opposition? What lessons do their lives and deaths hold for us today as the world once again trembles on the cliff of an uncertain future? Four Died Trying was six years in the making with nearly 100 interviews and counting. The first chapter, the prologue, is already available on Apple TV and elsewhere. Check out the film by going to the fourdiedtrying.com website. The next episode should be available around Christmas. The filmmakers have had problems with archived footage. They've had roadblocks thrown up in front of them. I suspect because there are powerful forces that want to keep our history locked away forever. Uh, this should not surprise us. Four American leaders died trying, killed by an empire that, like any empire, has no interest in peace or justice. If this corporate juggernaut would kill a sitting president using copyright to censor our history is a minor trifle. But the truth remains the truth, whether our regime wants to acknowledge it or not. I hope you enjoy the show and deepest thanks again to Four Died Trying. David Talbot, great to have you here. Good to be here. And Bryce Green, great as always. Yeah, glad to be here. So I'm going to talk about some things that David has written uh, recently and uh, just general some national political news items. Um, we are, all of us at one point, I don't know about Bryce, Bryce may have been radicalized before he was even voting age, so hard to say, but David and I used to be affiliated with the Democratic Party in different ways. I worked for Obama's campaign in 08, and David supported Democrats over the years. But the Democrats right now are not doing so well. This was in common dreams. Team Biden goes from denial to panic. The outlook is now grimmer than ever, but the big divide between Biden's low popularity and public support for the Democratic Party overall was clear a year ago. What now? 
yeah, it was clear a year ago and it has not improved in the last year, let's say. They point out how he's how badly he's doing against Trump, who is not a particularly strong candidate in terms of like his favorability in the public and so on. And yet he still seems to be beating Biden handily in polls, which is has got to be concerning. And it raises the prospect of whether he is even going to be the nominee. Now, David here is uh, he we're awarding him a special Devil's Chess Club uh, Medal of Valor or Purple Heart or something because he watched the Fox News debate between um, DeSantis here looking like DeSantis. I can just see him thinking to himself, smile like a normal person. I am Mr. Normal uh, on stage. And then Gavin, of course, is also not. He seems to be in the mold of like Macron and uh, Trudeau and uh, Boris. And like, I'm, I'm not really a fan of this guy. David, what can you tell us about what did you learn in this debate last night? And what do you think it portends for the for the Democrats in 2024? Well, you're right. I watch it. So you didn't have to, Aaron, and all of you uh, listening or watching did not have to. Um, Gavin, uh, I think, did rather well just to go into the Fox News den and uh, face Sean Hannity and DeSantis and all the Fox News graphics uh, that uh, said California was basically accessible and Florida's doing great. One graphic after the next from Fox News that uh, uh, Governor Newsom had to bat down to defend California. Look, I've known Gavin for many years. He was my mayor out here in San Francisco. Uh, I interviewed him. He interviewed me about my book, Season Witch, was, uh, which was about San Francisco's wild history in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think the analogy to Macron and uh, Trudeau is an apt one. I think Gavin is a younger, more uh, articulate, uh, version of Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden is dead man walking, as all polls, as you suggested earlier. Um, the Democratic Party is uh, in disarray and panic about his the prospect of a rematch between Trump and Biden. And Trump could win, as wounded as Trump is uh, legally in the courtroom and every other way, uh, he could still beat Biden. Because Biden is so old, so doddering at this point, um, and I think so unpopular with people, because Bidenomics, as DeSantis pointed out last night, is not a strong platform to run for the election on. And Gavin Newsom had a lot of explaining to do, and I thought he was at his weakest when he defended the Biden administration. He was at his strongest, actually, going after DeSantis and how he has made the state of Florida not a free state, but has criminalized women, has criminalized uh, people who want the right to vote, i.e. black people, uh, has criminalized doctors who carry out abortions, and has criminalized teachers uh, for teaching banned books in Florida. So Gavin was at his best when he took it to DeSantis, as he did last night. He's a good debater. I predicted, uh, long ago that race next year, the presidential race, even though Gavin denies it, and he denied it again last night to Sean Hannity, um, Gavin will replace Biden as the Democratic uh, candidate next year. 
I believe that a Newsome uh, uh, Kamala Harris ticket would be California centric, obviously, and be an odd one in that respect. But Kamala's a good soldier, and I think she'll go along with the role that she's playing as uh, uh, basically a very, you know, uh, non consequential vice president. Pretty I think embarrassing, that, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, if Gavin is elected, I think he'll pay her off, basically, by appointing her to the Supreme Court. So I think that's what is the agenda of many people in the Democratic Party. They don't want Joe Biden to run again. They think he's very vulnerable to Trump, as he is. And they want someone younger and more aggressive, like uh, Gavin Newsom, to run instead. Right. I just don't. It seems that it would be a tricky thing to pull off in that, especially with the whole uh, primary debacle. I mean, would they try to have a primary process with Gavin? Would they need to do it before then? Or are they just going to foist him? Because I think that they don't want a primary. I mean, they didn't. They definitely didn't when it looked like Bobby Kennedy was going to be the person that would be participating in it. And Joe Biden wanted to censor him since his first day in office and did so. Uh, but then they're going to just anoint someone. I mean, it seems like like it would just be confirming the critique of the Democratic Party, which is that it's as it's a rigged top down thing. And they it doesn't matter that Bernie is more popular, for example, in the previous two election cycles, they will just finagle it and rig it. And now they'll just not even have a primary. They'll just say, here, here's your Trudeau Macron uh, automaton. Uh, he looks good in his suit and he is competently. Uh, able to say our talking points uh, and so on. I mean, this is going to, is, is, is it going to be a, can they actually pull this off? Can they just rebrand the soul of Joe Biden in this new, uh, this new vessel? I mean, how, how could they pull we, this off? Right, Aaron, we are both Democrats. I don't know about Bryce, but uh, we are very loyal Democrats in the past. And the party seems now to be, be hopelessly rigged as you say, the process uh, for becoming president. I think Bobby Kennedy Jr. was right to drop out of the Democratic Party as hard as it was for him, given his family legacy and uh, for, for you and me, I think, to divorce ourselves from the party. But I think it has become quite rigged. The, the fat cats, the plutocrats, the oligarchs control it. I think they have the right now to basically appoint uh, their presidential candidate at the convention next summer. After well, Joe you say Biden, you say you say right, uh, but do you mean that they have the ability to do that? Well, There's I think that's right. in the DNC rules. Actually, yeah, 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 right. They can step in at that point and appoint uh, whoever they want uh, yeah. as the president. They don't want the messiness of democracy. They don't want the primary system to be contested at all. Obviously, they want you know, Joe Biden to sleepwalk his way through the primaries. He will. And then uh, they'll tell him, thank you for your service, Mr. Biden, President Biden, uh, now step down. If they're smart, Jim Carville and others in the party, David Axelrod, big wigs like that, have suggested this already, that if the Democratic Party has a brain and moves uh, swiftly, they'll replace Biden with someone younger and more compelling as a candidate. Uh, I think it's you know likely to be Gavin Newsom. Despite what he told Sean Hannity last night, he said he has no, he won't do an LBJ 
he won't uh, seek or accept a nomination from this party. LBJ famously delivered that speech from the White House uh, early in the uh, presidential primary in 1968. But Gavin wouldn't do that last night. He sidestepped that answer, uh, that question. He seems to be a Biden loyalist and a Kamala Harris lo loyalist, but uh, he's biding his time. Right. That seems to be the way. If it is, by the way, somehow uh, a Newsom Harris on the Democratic ticket, it would have the bizarre, uh, almost uncanny coincidence of like, if there's any two officials in the US who are most responsible for uh, keep you know the injustice that is keeping the patsy for the RFK assassination in jail. Like in terms of uh, officialdom, it's uh, Newsom and Gavin and uh, Harris. They were the ones yeah. who didn't deny him parole. And then earlier, Harris had that ridiculous exchange as Attorney General, where she basically, in court documents, I mean, they made, the lawyers make all these arguments about how look, this exonerates Sirhan. It shows he couldn't have been shot. And as I recall, her response to this was that. Well, you know, we've got this what, one of those ridiculous cranks who's like a propagandist who just pr is, prof is somehow professionally able to spend their time debunking, quote unquote, the, uh, you know, the critical accounts of the political assassinations of the 60s. They cited his work and said, like, well, because, you know, look at him and he says this about it. And uh, he was definitely part of the conspiracy. So we can't give him a new trial or anything. I mean, they're both the two people. So it would be a strange personal thing for Bobby Kennedy for it to be these two people. I mean, it, that would be another, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's why they're appointed. I'm just saying, well, how bizarre is it that that's come to pass? Well, not only the Sir Hein, uh, you know, uh, decision to keep him in jail, uh, not only that you can hang on Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom, but also, uh, I think DeSantis was right last night. I live in San Francisco. Yeah, he showed a poop chart, by the way. I think that was a low moment in presidential debates. I think it was a, pres a presidential debate. A poop chart showing where people are defecating in the city of San Francisco. What neighborhoods are most, uh, the shit is showing up. Uh, so he showed that actually that image that he took apparently from the uh, the web it was an app, somewhere. I think. There's somebody made yeah, an app, yeah. I think, for the phone. It's like, a, yeah. So other than, you know, it, it was a graphic way of showing uh, that the city has descended into, uh, uh, you know, defecation and so on, public defecation. But he's right on the broader point. Both Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris emerged politically from San Francisco. And this city had become an, a poster boy, a poster for uh, neoliberal policies. And the rich have gotten much, much richer, the tech elite in the city. And people have been evicted. Thousands of people have been evicted. Bobby Kennedy Jr. has pointed out uh, over the years since the tech industry took over this town some 15 or 20 years ago. So um, Gavin Newsom was mayor of San Francisco. He was in charge as that homeless crisis really peaked, as the wealth gap really peaked in the city. And of course, Kamala Harris was our district attorney. They both emerged from the political uh, sort of cauldron here in San Francisco, as Diane Feinstein, Nancy Pelosi, and others have uh, national figures. So you could hang that, I think, on them both. 
um, their careers, their political careers have both been sponsored by the wealthy, by the elite in Silicon Valley, in Hollywood and others. That's why Gavin Newsom, I think, is out of touch. Bobby Kennedy Jr. Uh, and Cornell West, uh, candidates like that, understand that much of the country is still suffering economically. Uh, Gavin Newsom has been, his whole career, whether it's the Getty family, the billionaire family, the oil family in San Francisco uh, that sponsored him as a young man or others who took him under the wing, he has spoken largely for that class. He's been very liberal, very progressive on social issues. Uh, Salon, my publication, threw a party at the uh, in Boston at the Democratic convention there in 2004, was it? He was persona non grata. He was mayor of San Francisco then, Gavin Newsom. People literally, Barney Frank, who's gay himself, the congressman from Massachusetts, would not speak to him. They thought he was ruining their chances to elect John Kerry against George Bush because gay marriage was a, uh, a wedge issue for the Republicans that year. And Gavin Newsom, as mayor, had endorsed gay marriage. So to his credit, he's been out in front on social issues like gun control, uh, uh, liberation, homosexual liberation, uh, on the environment, on a number of things. I think he would be a formidable adversary, for instance, if he's on stage next year against Bobby Kennedy. The two know each other. That would be interesting debate. But Gavin Newsom, his downside is he's owned by the wealthy. He's owned by the real estate industry, by the tech industry, by Hollywood. Uh, and, and all his policies really emanate from those oligarchies that control him. Right. Yeah, that, that seems to be very clear. I, even his gay marriage stance is like, it's not like that was a politically courageous thing to do in San, as in San Francisco, you know, it's like even so it's, he did the right thing, but hard to give him credit for when the right thing lines up with the smart political thing. Uh, that's kind of, but I, I hear you on that. Um, now you recently wrote, uh, for the Kennedy Beacon, your latest piece is how to argue for RFK Jr. This is good, helpful advice for people. Um, it, it came a little after Thanksgiving, unfortunately, when it would have you know, have been helpful for conversations around the country. But uh, at, at, towards the end of the article, you write this, which I think is a, a key point here for your argument. It's true that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has never held elected office and as an independent wouldn't enjoy the institutional support of the Democratic and Republican parties. And yet in our increasingly polarized country, these do not seem like negatives. America is broken, fragmented. Our empire is falling. There's something very appealing about a deeply knowledgeable outsider. Voters are clearly repelled by the dismal prospects of a Biden and Trump rematch, with both leading candidates viewed unfavorably by well over 50% of voters, while Kennedy's popularity continues to soar. Um, what, uh, what, what do you think of his chances right now? I mean, uh, we are in the wake of the 60th anniversary uh, his his announcement that he would run as an independent it it was he was very very unlucky like the worst thing that possibly could have happened plausibly with the the whole Israel thing happened to him because that is his worst policy as we agree um, and which we'll talk about in in a minute but um, he's still polling better than any independent candidate ever and uh, he's on the, it was announced that he's going to be on the debates on the debate stage uh, you know in the debate season so this is I think remarkable. Um, what, how would you 
try to summarize your main points in this article that you wrote? Because you listed 10 reasons, which you don't need to enumerate. But uh, overall, what is the what is the argument you're making here? Well, I think that the American voters are desperate for another choice. They don't want none of the above. That's what they're saying. And if Trump and Biden at their ripe old age, we know that movie, we've seen it uh, for a long time now, and we don't want it. That's true of most American voters. They're rejecting, I think, when they say to pollsters that Trump is not popular, Biden is not popular. They want someone else who is a third, uh, I think, choice. And Bobby Kennedy, because of his family name, because of what he stands for, frankly, because of the way he seems to talk honestly about experiencing as Americans. Uh, he came out for black reparations. He uh, says that the government should offer 3% mortgage rate uh, uh, for, for new houses for people. Um, he's come out, he understands that dynamics is uh, Potemkin Village that many people are suffering are paycheck to paycheck. He understands that the forever wars have crushed us with debt and we can't keep supporting these wars in Gaza and Afghanistan. Morally, we can't support it and economically we can't support it. He's been an environmental activist for most of his life. So again and again, I feel that Bobby Kennedy is on the right side of things. Yes, I wish he were more forthright about Israel and Gaza, and we'll talk about that. But uh, I think on nine out of 10 issues, he's the correct choice. And I think what these polls are showing is that, as we said earlier, Biden is in real political trouble, as I believe Trump is as well. I mean, you know, the fat cats and, and many people are desperate for an alternative, a Republican alternative. So. Uh, what's his name from uh, Diamond from uh, Wall Street is is putting his money on uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, really? I didn't. I didn't realize. I thought he was. I thought he was more of one of those sort of liberal, you know, enlightened, high finance dudes. I didn't think he would go full on because she's a, he, on, a real. He thinks that liberal Democrats should support Nikki Haley now as an alternative to Trump. He had advised the liberal Democrats to, to donate to her. That's the that seems is so. Is it a Pied Piper thing? Like he thinks that she's a bad candidate, and that's why he wants to support her because she is a. I even more than Trump, I feel like she will kill us all. Like I, Trump, I think wouldn't because if Trump blows up the world, he knows he will die, and and he most cares only about himself. Nikki Haley, when I see her speak, I think that she is a lunatic and is dangerous. Well, let's talk about the uh, about Wall Street and what the oligarchy wants for this country. I think they actually disagreed with Trump about the deep state, about being aggressive uh, imperially. And I think that Nikki Haley and Gavin Newsom would be exactly who they want. Either one is a win for the oligarchy for Wall Street because they want uh, a foreign policy that, like today that's very aggressive, that's anti-China, anti-Russia, that advances U.S. interests abroad. And uh, so I think that's where the deep state, that's where the, the people on Wall Street, the executives, that's what they want. Uh, Trump is a wild card. You're right. He's all in many ways. He's a demagogue. I think he's a phony populist. But the one thing is he kept us out of war. Uh, 
and they don't trust him for that reason. And he's a bad look for soft power. I mean, he just this is where I don't this is where trying to figure out what Wall Street wants is is a real conundrum because we know they have enormous power, but we also know that what they want is kind of insane. They want to perpetuate this system where they have Rumpelstiltskin power with the dollar around the world. That's the heart of it. And they can make a, a extreme amounts of money and they can topple governments that attempt to nationalize or otherwise trifle with their invested capital around the world. They, they think that this is, they can't see a better situation than this understandably because they designed this system and they have decided how it would be run. But in their own interests, I, I don't know that they're the best arbiters of their own interests anymore because I don't see that this system can go on this way and an attempt to make it go on this way could pro eventually provoke a backlash where their invested capital around the world will be in an even worse position than it would have been if the U.S. adapted to bow to reality. That's where I do think that there may be enough of the establishment that will break with these two to, you know, that we may see something totally out of the ordinary this year because their interests yeah. are not served. They think they are, but I don't, I think that they are wrong. I think that they just can't see what has happened and they don't, they don't understand how much their enormous fortunes rest on imperial high-handedness and brutality that the rest of the world is absolutely sick of and is finally powerful enough to set in motion the, 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 the dismantlement of this system. I don't think that they think that way because these are not deep thinkers. They only think about making money and acquiring more power. They, are, they do not have a complex understanding of history or trends in, uh, in, in international politics and so on. It's, yeah. That makes them very dangerous. It's like I don't even think of them as like individual people in, in this sense, because the, the reason that this logic keeps perpetuating, the reason that, you know, we keep expanding why Wall Street still thinks that they can eat all the economy uh, and uh, that'll be fine, that they can perpetuate monopolies and all that stuff. The reason isn't because, you know, individuals are thinking long term about the health of the country and they're thinking, how can we get ahead? They're thinking about short term gain. The, the, the system that we have perpetuates a, like a, a, every incentive for you to think like uh, on a quarterly basis. If someone says, well, you know, we, we could invest in this, uh, but, you know, uh, 50 years out, uh, you know, all these wars that we're causing might harm our business. No, 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 that doesn't matter. Uh, if someone thinks that, well, then they'll just replace them with someone who only thinks in the short term. And that's an internal logic about the American structure of capitalism right now. And especially finance capital, which is based on, you know, Michael Hudson talks about this a lot. Finance capital being based on the premise of endless accumulation, uh, not being based necessarily in the real economy. Uh, well, you know, there's inherent contradictions to that mode of analysis and that mode of operating. And uh, unlike countries like China, which run off of industrial capitalism, where they're actually building things and they're uh, uh, raising the standard of living, they're making sure that the financial sector doesn't overtake the entire political sector. And uh, in America, the the internal logics of capitalism, of finance capitalism, of that political sector, of Wall Street, dominate the political decision making in the United States. And so even if, you know, they, the reason why the policy is so insane and it's so inhuman is because it's not a human way of thinking. It's the logic of, you know, capitalism taken to the extreme. And it doesn't matter if it's going to blow up the world as long as the incentives push people into thinking in terms of quarterly gains. Well, then that, we're going to continue to see all this insane policy. 
Yeah, Biden uh, Omics, Bryce, they, they try to say it's going great and it's not. I think Bryce's analysis is more true than we would like to admit. It's pretty bleak, <laughs> but I think that's true. That I think uh, the people who control our economy, the people at the top, the Jamie Diamonds, where's the JP Morgan? Uh, uh, they want a, an aggressive US foreign policy. They want to confront China and Russia wherever and whenever. They want military bases all around the world. They want the forever wars. Look, look at the stocks, uh, how they soared, went soaring uh, during uh, the crisis in Gaza. The, these are the stocks of the military industrial complex. The people manufacture these weapons that we're flooding the world with from Ukraine to Gaza to whoever demands them or buys them. Uh, so, yes, Wall Street, uh, which has a major stake in the military industrial complex. And let's face it, since Eisenhower gave a famous address, uh, the entire economy has become militarized. I think a vast a section of our economy now is dependent in one way or another on uh, aggressive imperial policy. So, um, whether it's big oil or uh, the military industrial complex, they want us to defend the world, uh, to militarize the world. And we have, and we've been very powerful and done very well, a certain sector has, uh, you know, since World War II. So I, you know, would like to believe, Aaron, that the U.S. empire can be wound down in a peaceful way and that, uh, you know, far-side capitalists realize it's on their interest to have climate change and war and big oil and all the rest. But a, a big sector of capitalists is still wedded to that destructive viewpoint because it makes money for them, makes profits for them. And until war and oil are not... Uh, you know, profit sectors for these people, then they'll uh, be wedded to that policy, those policies. Bobby Kennedy and Trump in his own weird way, but Bobby Kennedy in a more logical way, it represents something new. Uh, and Cornel West, who I don't believe has a real shot at the White House. I don't think he wants to, I don't think he even wants to. He dropped from the Green Party, I think, and because he didn't want to be a yeah. spoiler. That's the only logic I can derive from but that. I don't think it'd be a three-way race next year. And I think Bobby Kennedy's in it to win it. I think he has the money and the stamina and the uh, the brand and, and everything else to go all, and the organization to go all the way. So I, I've told this to Bobby, uh, who I know, and I've told it to you, uh, our audience, that the closer he gets to the White House, actually his security concerns are even more valid. Because yeah. I don't think they want a Bobby Kennedy to be anywhere near the White House, just like they didn't want his father or uncle uh, in yeah. the White House. So, uh, look, Bobby Kennedy does represent something new. He's not, I think, a revolutionary. Uh, he's not going to, you know, upend this country uh, completely. But he represents something new enough to threaten them, to threaten the people in power. And so... Uh, I think it's going to be very interesting what happens next year politically in this country. I would go further and say that based on what he is saying about his main goals to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power, which is another way of saying he wants to end fascism. Okay, it's a synonym for this. 
and and roll back the empire that in a sense he is a revolutionary but he's not calling him calling himself a revolutionary because he's not fighting a regime that even calls itself what it is like he is attempting to end at what is essentially a fascist regime that is disguised as such bent on global dominance but because it is not formally a fascist regime that says yes we are the fascist regime we decide how it's going to be and you must listen to us and the law doesn't apply to us and we want to rule the whole world uh, as for as long as possible they don't say it but that really is the goal and that is the practice uh it is what he is trying to do is is somewhat revolutionary he's trying to really reorient the system in a way that fundamentally uh, changes it and what it has become. And I, I do agree with, with, with both of you that the Wall Street people are very much short-term profit, short-term profit. But the, the other thing that I would say to complicate that is, and this goes back to the very beginning of the US empire in World War II and the Council on Foreign Relations, they actually do pay people to think long-term about, the, more long-term about these things. But the issue is that they hire them to do this with, certain things in mind like if you're a, a major corporation and you hire a company to do advertising for you they're going to say your product is great no matter what because that's what you're paying them to do here you're they're they're paying intellectuals to formulate foreign policy and so on to the interests of wall street and they do have some long-term plans i mean the plans for the world bank and the imf and the un that that was hatched in world war ii uh and also you know Bretton woods was some longer term planning and then by in the 90s, you have three entities, I think, that'll help understand why we're at this crazy moment now. And they put out policy papers and they weren't short term profit, you know, Goldman Sachs reports on this quarterly earnings, whatever. These are uh, the the Brzezinski book, which was commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations, the Grand Chess Board, which basically says, like, we need if we're going to stay on top, number one, globally, we need to dominate Eurasia, you know, uh, the Middle East and Central Asia and so on. It's the pivot of the world and we need to control that. It's a, a, mess, a, a recipe for the imperialism we've seen. And he's the sort of realist corporate side of the Council on Foreign Relations. And then you have the even crazier side, which is the Project for a New American Century. And they represent uh, neoconservatives uh, in, in, intertwined with, with very pro-Zionist people. And they were even more crazy. And they were saying that like, the Middle East and Iraq, we need to have full spectrum dominance over every area. And uh, we, this is going to be hard without a new Pearl Harbor, et cetera. And in, on the Israeli side, you had the clean break document, which is around 96, which I think Netanyahu was one of the co-authors. And then maybe Bernard Lewis was in, involved with that. But it's a number of right of hawkish Zionists who are basically spelling out a plan that is very much congruent with the project for a new American century plan. And it was this whole insane scheme for how to secure American dominance over the long term. And we, they've been pursuing it for decades. And I think they failed with the 9-11 wars because Iraq didn't go the way they wanted to, nor Iran, nor um, Afghanistan. And with the Arab Spring Wars in Libya and Syria, those did not achieve their goals either. The NATO expansion has fizzled out. They failed everywhere. And now it seems like that is related to why Israel is like, we got to solve this Palestinian issue and we'd like to just drive them into the desert. So it's all coming to a head and these longer term solutions plans that have failed that's what's failed and do they have the ability to course correct i think is the question that we're all asking and the other question or that the world wants an answer to the other one david and i this is what uh, i'm hoping you can that we can add something here about this but we are still waiting for bobby kennedy's we're recording this on friday uh december 1st we're waiting to hear his his manifesto for him to release his manifesto on uh, on, on Israel, Palestine. 
but he is he has uh he is taking his time i will say he is taking his time david what my hope is that he will use the jeffrey Sachs approach and essentially make Sachs his point man on this this is what i've said and i i'm optimistic because Sachs is friendly with him and he's endorsed him but uh what do you what do you make of this well, I'm very dis- disheartened, as you know, by Bobby's silence on uh, the elephant in the room right now, which is the war in Gaza. Uh, I mean, it's a humanitarian disaster. There was a story in the New York Times today that even Bernie Sanders won't uh, call for a ceasefire um, because I, you know, for political reasons. And progressives are very upset with Bernie as well. Because uh, Bernie has been outspoken about Israel in the past, so look, I've I believe that they'll kill each other, the Palestinians and the Israelis, unless this is resolved diplomatically, like Bernie Sanders has said. And I want Bobby to speak out for diplomacy as well. You know, the Middle East unfortunately has played a very tragic role in his family. Uh, his father was killed uh, in uh, assassinated in 1968. They blamed it on a Palestinian extremist, Sirhan Sirhan. We know, and Bobby knows, that Sirhan did not fire the fatal shot that killed his father that night, that he was a, a weirdly hypnotized decoy. Uh, he didn't know what he was doing. The fatal shot, as uh, the coroner, Thomas Noguchi, and others who were there that night witnessed, said that was from behind, was at a point-blank range into Bobby Kennedy's skull. Uh, at an, uh, at an upward came, angle, too. An upward angle. And Sirhan was standing four to five feet in front of him. So, yes, he was firing his gun wildly. He was... Uh, yeah, obviously uh, a, a menace, but he did not kill Bobby Kennedy that night. So, and Bobby Kennedy Jr. visited Sirhan in jail not long ago and told him that. He, he understood that. He looked into it. He investigated. He's a lawyer. He's a smart guy. He talked to a lot of the same people that I had talked to, and I talked to Bobby about this. So, uh, Bobby Jr. So, he wasn't shooting from the hip when he absolved Sirhan of this terrible crime. Uh, and yet he allowed a rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley as he's known, uh, you know, an extremist Zionist to say this was basically a Palestinian plot that Sirhan killed his father. He sat right there and, and allowed him to say that he didn't correct him. So, uh, you know, look, Israel, the Middle East have played, as I say, a very tragic role uh, in its family's history. He knows that. Uh, I, you know, disagree with some of my progressive friends. I do believe Israel has the right to exist. I am for myself something that probably is politically impossible, a secular state that includes both Palestinians and Israelis and Jews. Uh, and and they learn to get together uh, and get along, just like blacks and whites in this country, just like Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, or else they'll kill each other. Uh, that's There's only one way. And I think they have to have equal rights before the law, Palestinians, 
and Jewish uh, members of Israel. I think there should be one state. I think the settlements have made the two-state solution an impracticality uh, debt, basically. And so I think there's one nation that does uh, exist in that place. And instead of occupying the uh, Palestinians, instead of treating them like animals, which is what they do in a cage, uh, that the Israelis have to learn to get along with the Palestinians, as, as many of them do currently. Uh, Thomas Friedman and others, the columnists from the New York Times, has pointed out many, many Israelis and Palestinians uh, live peacefully, work together, uh, even intermarry. It's, it's absurd and tragic that they treat each other as enemies when they live side by side. So look, the only way towards a stable situation there is for both uh, sides to live side by side peacefully, diplomatically, and be treated with equal rights before the law. Yeah, one way or the other. I am agnostic about what the actual outcome would be. I mean, uh, uh, two states, they if, the, if it was put to the Israelis as it's either going to be a two-state solution or a one-state solution, at that point, it may, be, it may become the case that the one state is workable because it was never not really workable. If you, the only problem is there's no will in, at the top of the Israeli side or the U.S. side to make it happen. Now, I'm not saying it will happen, but if to make this the one thing that could make it once a one-state solution is the one thing that could make a two-state solution possible. The prospect <laughs> of it, I don't know. I just know that it's the situation with the Palestinians is so unacceptable by any understanding of of, of human rights that you could ever articulate, and I think that yeah. that is why. There's so much propaganda about it. And I think that's why the image of Israel is really suffering right now is because people are looking at it and they're think more people are thinking about what are the actual conditions there than have ever thought about it before. And this is not a good thing for them. They don't want more people thinking about this. They want people to just recite axioms mindlessly like Israel has a right to exist. Hamas wants to exterminate all uh, Jews in the world. Whether there's any basis for saying these things or not, they... They would rather it just be a bunch of cliches. I think this is this is where the it's not just that the footage is a disaster coming out of Gaza for the Israeli cause, but it's that it's the, it's making people look at the history who might not have wanted to give it the time of day otherwise. Right. You know, we talk about the solutions, uh, the, the like two state, one state. Uh, I mean, if we ever get to the point where our arguments about uh, the solution to the conflict are relevant. Then I think that we've we've hit a play we've hit a major victory. Uh, right now, until we get to that point, the only goal that any progressive, any leftist, any, honestly, any anyone who like claims to care about human rights should have, is to force Israel to make that decision. And the only way to do that is to withdraw the material, diplomatic, and economic support. Uh, that that's that's the only way. And the only way to do that is to develop uh, you know the organizational capacity to fight the Israel lobby. And that can take many forms. It can take the, the forms on, uh, on campuses like I'm spending my time doing. It can take the form of, you know, making uh, uh, think tanks in D.C. that are focused on this issue that will that push for access, creating alliances with elected officials, uh, getting rid of these anti-BDS laws on the state level. I mean, that, that that's a massive task, but it seems to be the only way, the only, uh, you know, A to B line I can see to Americans actually making the situation better for the Palestinians. 
Yeah, yeah we'll look, give you the last uh, word here. Well, I know all three of us have Palestinian and Jewish friends. And, uh, you know, some of my girlfriends were Jewish. My sister is married to a Jew. Uh, I've probably been to more Passover Seder dinners than many of my Jewish friends. I know that culture well, and it's a smart, wonderful, vibrant culture. So is the Palestinian culture. Can you imagine if the Palestinian people and the Jewish people in Israel got together? How vibrant and wonderful a nation that would be if they got together in the same democratic, secular uh, country and they learned to live with each other. That would be an amazing place. I would love to visit there. It would be, I think, a beacon to the world if they got along peacefully and, and worked together. Because I know how actually, uh, you know, the assets, the resources that both people have, and the and 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 if they can put aside enmity, and they can get along, I think could could be one of the most beautiful countries, an oasis in the world. So, uh, you know, I pray that they do that that they find a way towards peace. I think the Netanyahu regime in Israel is a major problem. I think they allowed Hamas to attack. They knew about the plan, as the New York Times reported today, uh, at least a year in advance. Netanyahu saved his ass politically and legally by letting this war happen. That was the only thing that prevented him from falling. Netanyahu, to me, is a monster, is a war criminal. And he has to be removed from power. And the Israeli people were about to do that when he allowed this war to happen. So, you know, let's get rid of him first and then we can sit down together. Here, here. David Talbot, thank you very much. Uh, it was great having you back. And uh, until next time, peace. Take it easy, David. Bryce Green, it's great to have you here. How you been? I've been good, been good. Uh, happy days because Henry Kissinger's dead and, you know, planning the party and it's going to be, you know, take a lot out of me, but it's well worth it. What about you? Yeah. Have you what have you uh, been up to? Kissinger, man. Uh, well, it's the, the 60th anniversary. We're are just getting over past that. And that was a whole lot of work for me. Uh, the Kissinger, then Kissinger dies. So it's strange to ponder Kissinger. Uh, I think because he's so he's a machine, he's a machine man, you know, he's a, he's a product of this system. He only rose. If he's a weirdo doing something else, you wouldn't even know who he was, but in the foreign policy hierarchy, it's his craziness and the craziness of the system combined to produce that, which we think of as Henry Kissinger. Uh, he survived Watergate. Somehow, I think he may have been one of the main people involved in getting rid of Nixon, although he's people don't know that. But the Rockefeller wing that he was associated with, but interfacing with the military people like Haig and so on, and yeah. then other blue blood people like uh, what was the guy's name? Um, David Young, right? Another guy who went out unscathed and was in those that milieu. We'll never really get to know what happened with Kissinger and Watergate, most likely. And no, no, but no, we, we no, know no, enough no, about the guy no. to be to think that it's. The world is not worse off for him being gone. Yeah. And, and like one thing's for sure about Kissinger is that even if he wasn't behind uh, specifically, like uh, like in terms of causing it, he was definitely a part of that milieu that was behind it because he remained. 
and he continued to remain. Nixon got impeached. Kissinger got a, a Nobel Prize. Uh, like, and he got got a consulting firm that became one of the staples of Washington. And they represented the, the Bin Ladens. They they were had the Bin Ladens in there yeah. too, right? Or at least some Saudi Kissinger. royals. And then they tried to put him on the 9-11 commission, which I I still I didn't know that for a long time. And I didn't realize that they like had tried to put him on, but then these these Jersey girls were asking him questions like, Well, are you gonna disclose your clients? And he was like, I'm actually just gonna withdraw from the, the commission. <laughs> which, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I almost wish they would have put him on there because it wouldn't have been any different, I don't think. It would have been, and it would have made it, it would have added a little bit of a slapstick quality to it. Instead, yeah. they had Zelikow, and Zelikow's a guy who wrote a foreign affairs article a few years earlier, I think around 1996 or seven or something like that, with like the cat, what would the, it was like the catastrophic effects of a major terror attack or the, the cycle, the political yeah. effects. The political historic effects of a catastrophic terror attack in the United States. And he basically calls, describes exactly what would happen. And then if there were a major terror attack and how, you know, it would lead to X, Y, and Z. And then when he writes the 9-11 commission report, the staffers later complained that like they had an outline before it even began of what it was going to be. Like they, there wasn't a real investigation. It was already determined. So it was like, and they made a joke outline, a, a joke version of this, like a satirical version that they circulated where they like, talk about the magic bullet 2.0 and stuff like that. So, or the lone nut theory, this and that, like they were making fun of how it was basically a Warren commission redux. So, uh, yeah. you know, whether it would have been Kissinger, whatever, whether it was Zelikow, it was going to be the same thing. Yeah. Philip Sinnon's book uh, talks about some of the, like the nonsense of the commission, just how no one trusted the CIA and no one trusted uh, all the people that were talking to them. They were like, we're clearly being lied to. Okay, let's put that. And out Shannon is spooky as hell too. By the way, Shannon yeah. is like that's like a spook on spook crime or something when he writes <laughs> that. Uh, but Zelikow, he's he also. I mean, this isn't a show about Zelikow, but he was also put on the 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 COVID origins commission, wasn't he? I probably that sounds about right. I think. Oh, I, I remember reading that. Um, did sacks on that. that. I'm gonna share. Uh, uh, people should look at this. He did this hour and a half talk with like defenders of the republic or something it's a weird sort of conservative group but he really gave a great critique of uh the covid stuff as well so they should have had somebody like him do it <laughs> at least if they're gonna pick an establishment dude he would have been better they picked him for the covid thing not zelikow what was yeah that, i we should go and look that up what he actually did because he was such a creep but we'll yeah. we can figure that out later but what's on the plate today okay i want to talk about i was gonna have click i'm gonna have kit Clarenberg come back on the show, but he wrote a very cool article over at Gray Zone on Oswald and such. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Um, and this article is called, as you can tell by the headline here, JFK assassination at 60 um, Oswald doubles show CIA hand in plot. And here uh, in the picture, you see Robert Webster, who was a defector. And uh, Kit Clarenberg talks about how he went to Moscow uh, how you know how Oswald was a defector also, and and so was this this fellow. They came back around the same time. They sort of looked similarly, um, but the weird thing was when Webster came back. Or one strange thing about this is when Webster comes back to the U.S., he's greeted by this big crowd of journalists and so on. CIA debriefs him in Washington over two whole weeks, and uh, they thought that maybe he could provide some information about how life was in the Soviet Union. Um, so then with Oswald, it was quite different. 
he was treated very differently uh, from from Webster. He was kind of ignored when he came back. So there's a, a, a clipping of the time of Webster coming back. Oswald was not treated that way. Supposedly, he was not greeted by, debriefed by the CIA. That was the official story. That even though he had defected to the Soviet Union and said, "I want to renounce my citizenship. I want to." Uh, give away some secrets that I learned about some spy planes and other top secret information, you know, like <laughs> even though he says these things, the CIA is like, Oh, we ignored him for quite a long time, which is not believable. We didn't think it, it was, turned, we didn't think it was important. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it, it turns out that he was uh, met by someone very important uh, or at least with connections to the government. And that's Spaz T. Rakin. Uh, Peter's written about this before. Uh, he, he was met in, I think, New Brunswick or something like that, somewhere in Jersey, I believe. And it uh, says, Raikin was at the same time Secretary General of the American Friends of the Anti-Bolshevik Nations, an anti-communist organization with extensive intelligence connections like the American government, an unlikely source of support for a traitor like Oswald would have been at the time. Um, so he was greeted by this guy and this fellow gave him he's from like the traveler's aid society or something like that but he's also this right-wing anti-communist person with intelligence connections and he meets oswald and then gives him money to get to fort worth you know dallas fort worth now here's what rakin said years later because he was interviewed at his retirement community uh he said if i worked for the cia i'd have a government pension said rakin there are many myths that have been associated with my contact with lee avery oswald the biggest myth is that i had been an agent of the cia this is the most untrue myth that was created by writers. <laughs> well, maybe not the most, but come on. Uh, my obligation was to meet him, assist him through customs. Uh, once I delivered him to, to the office, my job was finished with him. He was passed to another worker and I had no more contact with him. So I don't know that. I mean, I think he is uh, not being forthright here. There's plenty of people who do not, who are not pensioners, pensioners or whatever, who the CIA used his assets or agents. Yeah, on the official payroll with the yeah, 401k I mean, he, matching. Like, I mean, he's a, he was the Secretary General of the American Friends of the Anti-Bolshevik Nations. That is functionally not different from being a CIA asset, even if he is somehow not literally a CIA asset, which I would have a hard time believing. So that's fascinating. That's in Kit's article. The other part of this that's really fascinating is talking all about these imposters and these bizarre stories i know people that watch this may be familiar with them but they're they're always amazing to me when i when i come across them again as many things are with the jfk case there's just like oh yeah i forgot about that crazy thing with no possible inner innocent explanation you know this this one of many 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 in this case um in june of 60 after oswald had already gone to the soviet union j edgar hoover issues a memo saying uh that since there's a possibility that an imposter is using Oswald's birth certificate, any current information the Department of State may have concerning the subject will be investigated. So this is, uh, there's for so they already have cause. It, it's up to the point that J. Edgar Hoover is worried about this uh, himself, that someone is impersonating this guy who defected to the Marines. Now, to me, the more fascinating thing is, relates to this, which was uncovered during a, post-assassination investigations but this guy who's a manager of a truck company in uh, excuse me in dallas i believe or no it's in new orleans i'm sorry um that he recalled two men coming to the bolton ford that was the dealership on january 20th 1961 uh and that they had wanted to make a purchase for some trucks for the friends of cuba 
uh, which has an address in New Orleans, Louisiana. And the guy, eventually, he gives them a, the person that is with the guy negotiating the deals gives it one name and then they change it to uh, Oswald, to Lee Oswald. So someone is trying to buy trucks using Lee Oswald's name for Democratic Friends of Cuba, uh, which is run by this guy, eventually Guy Bannister. I mean, okay, the it he incorporates this. There it was to collect money against uh, so that Cubans could fight against communism. So why Oswald is while he's in Russia is being impersonated by. A, a member of the Friends of Democratic Cuba in trying to purchase trucks uh, to help the Cubans with their cause. And then Oswald returns and later has those adventures in New Orleans shortly before the assassination where he's working out of Guy Bannister's office, the guy whose organization had been impersonating him while he was in Russia. <laughs> uh, he's handing out these Fair Play for Cuba committee flyers, which help to get him on the news and discredit the fair play for Cuba committee because he was a communist, you know, supposedly communist defector. But then after the assassination, this incident is used to say, look at Oswald. He's this crazy communist, except he was apparently working. He was working with this guy who was an extreme anti-communist and anti-Cuban communist, specifically a guy who was the head of the uh, Caribbean anti-communist league, a guy who'd worked for the FBI and did COINTELPRO type stuff. I mean, it's so, I don't know, what is your interpretation of these documents and this evidence, Bryce? Can you <laughs> give us an innocent counter explanation? Uh, the innocent counter explanation is that, uh, you know, there just so happened to be someone named uh, Lee Harvey Oswald that they were using to buy these trucks. But it was a it was a totally different person and he had nothing to do with the CIA. Uh, Guy Bannister, while he might have these connections that some conspiracy theorists might consider spooky, was actually just an innocent man, a true American patriot who just wanted to uh, fight against Castro and Stalinism. I mean, you conspiracy theorists seem to come up with all these sorts of disparate pieces of evidence and putting together, linking it, uh, going through documents. But, you know, really, they you just can't handle the fact that a single lone gunman was uh, enough to change history. And I think that that's a real disservice to the American people. And in fact, you're taking away the agency of Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, it is really important that we respect the agency of social misfit randos, you know, because that's that's the way Oswald is depicted, right? He's like the equivalent of an internet troll or something, just wants attention in some weird way. And so Yeah. And worse, you're taking away agency from Jack Ruby by extension. This is true. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. Imagine just trying to put this in your mind. Like I have a technically I have a small business with the American exception, right? So imagine if I sent someone out to go buy equipment for me and then I'm like, yeah, you need to impersonate, use this guy's name. And then later, randomly, for no reason, this guy comes and starts working in my office, but I don't know him at all. And, uh, you know, then he does some crazy things, but it's totally not as a coincidence. I mean, this is very strange. <laughs> it's absurd. <laughs> it's absurd. And it's just another one of those things that you can't explain without saying, OK, this is the hand of the clandestine state. Now, yeah. did so you happen so to see this? Them. No. Yeah. No. There's so many, like, the, especially with the uh, the Oswald doubles examples. Uh, like, uh, I, I haven't read Kit's article, but I, I don't know if he goes into this. But there was all these people. Uh, well, first, you have those people who are impersonating him, like, oh, I thought I was shooting at that son of a bitch Kennedy at the, the firing range. Then you have the people impersonating him, uh, 
or the buying a car, buying a car. Yeah. And then on the day of the assassination, there are all these different stories uh, about, uh, you know, a second Oswald being found in uh, so weird at the uh, what was it called? The Texas Theater. Yeah. Um, on the one leaves he, in the one leaves in the front and one leaves in the back. It's the yeah. weirdest. <laughs> oh, and, and one of the stories from uh, Jim Douglas's book that I've always found just bananas. That I remember when I was first reading the book, I was like, I was like, well, this is this is case closed. Was that someone had witnessed Oswald being taken out of the back of the theater? Yeah, and right. When you know the official stories that he came out the front, but he didn't know this. He doesn't like read the Warren Commission report. He doesn't. He's not a Kennedy assassination buff. But then a researcher comes back and is like. Yeah, did you you saw that? You just saw Oswald there? And he's like, Yeah. And I even wrote down the license plate for this car uh that, that took him away. And then he produced the license plate to that car and they looked it up. And it turned out to belong to a guy who worked for a I believe it was a radio station that was Bell, also a, a Bell Helicopter. Bell Helicopter. Was was that it? I believe that it was connected to Bell Helicopter somehow. Yeah, well, I remember it was a it was a uh, CIA subsidiary uh, subsidiary that had done work with this with the CIA directly, and and so then you, you have to start asking it's like, well, what are the odds that someone thought they saw Oswald and wrote down a license plate, and then that license plate just so happens to be connected to someone who's connected with the uh, the highest echelons of the covert state? That's it might not. A- I- let me let me interrupt this for a second. It may not have been Bell Helicopter. It may have been something else like Bell Telegram or something like that. I, I should go back and look that up because Bell Helicopter. That's was, where Michael Payne. The, that was where Michael Payne step, step his stepfather invented Bell Helic, Bell Helicopter. But it was it was a, so it was a different entity. It was like something Telegram or Telegraph or something maybe. I we could look that up, but yeah. I'm not going to try to do it on the fly here. Um, so yeah, there's that, and there's also an, uh, through those license plates that were connected to the two Oswalds, I believe that there's a document somewhere which says, yeah, this other license plate is connected to an automobile uh, that is involved with this Thomas Arthur Valet case, who was the patsy in Chicago. Like there's some bizarre way that he comes back oh. into that story too. So people could find that explained in JFK and the Unspeakable. But the other thing I want to talk about here before we uh, get out of JFK stuff is. This not laboratory simulation. Have you seen this? It's a they, they, these guys did a computer simulation. It was uh, a yeah, former I intelligence operative. And we talk about a little bit on the last thing with Jeff Morley that I recorded, and he had a little bit of background about the guy because the guy behind this is a former like um, national, uh, a former attorney like uh, for the for the federal government, I believe. And he commissioned this, uh, you know, who's been looking at this case for a while. So they put together, they use this technology to make a recreation of of Dealey Plaza using lasers to map out all these buildings. And they did a recreation of the shooting. And uh, they they basically show that it couldn't work the way that they said it did. And I'm going to show this video. YouTube actually censored it. And I'm going to just play it here because they put an age thing on it, just like they did with my Abby Martin, Oliver Stone video, Uh, which still infuriates me. But uh, they... Um, so I want people to see this because it's absolutely not graphic and there's no reason for it. So I'm going to hit escape on my PowerPoint here and go to this one. And they have a whole thing here showing uh, a a little write up on it. But what I really want to show is the video, which I hope will play on this. Okay. It says may contain graphic or violent imagery, which it absolutely does not. 
Okay, but here it is. There's no sound. But it's a, it's a they're showing like an overview of of Dealey Plaza and there's the window, there's this freeway sign. I mean, they really painstakingly put this together. It's only like a minute and a half long, but they there you can see the different angles. But the the funniest part, the, or the best part, is is the way that they have a. There you can see the grassy knoll area. Wow. The other thing is there was another version of this that was like the bad one that they did on the Discovery Channel. It was done by Dale Myers, who's one of those propagandists, and yeah, uh, they just PBS did one as well. <laughs> I know, but this one I think is the one where they actually make it as much as they can like centimeter by centimeter yeah. accurate see so there you see when he's gets when he gets shot they move the camera around there and that's where the supposed sniper's nest shooting through the trees because he's like yeah, do the live he's got right the predator he's got predator goggles the on yeah like the infrared. you would have to <laughs> be tracking this, this, him through the trees here's the best part okay because it's got they got to match the trajectory with uh the wounds to Connolly. So, um, again, the, the bullet did not, the bullet had exited at a higher point than that green thing, even on JFK. So it's already wrong before it gets to Connolly. They have to move Connolly. They have to move Connolly. And then there's no way really to get the exit wound right either. So that's it. Uh, hold on. I'm going to hit escape here. And we get to watch an ad. Yeah. These are all, yeah, these are all, uh, uh, They've been making these like 3D recreations for like year ever since like computers became like easily accessible. He's been making these for years, and uh, they're all based on you know various input data, various uh, uh, interpretations of what the photo photogrammetric evidence suggests about the positions of the given actors at any given specific time. Another thing I wanted to look at today was uh, just to revisit the question of uh, Israel-Palestine. And there's an article by William Van Wagenen, Wagenen um, over at The Cradle. And uh, the headline is, was October 7 a Hamas or Israeli massacre? And the, the subheadline is, Israel's controversial military policy of killing its own citizens to preserve national security may be its defining mistake of 7 October. Would there have even been a, a, quote, massacre that day if Israel had not employed the Hannibal Directive? And he's just pointing out that a number of reports have come out to really call into question whether Hamas or the and the whole group that led that assault, uh, whether they really were looking to massacre uh, Israel, Israeli civilians, whether they were responsible for the majority of Israeli civilian deaths or what exactly happened. Uh, and they, this one just sort of adds a, it, it compiles a lot of newer information that's out there. I recommend people check this out. But um, one example is this, uh, tw uh, this 112 people killed um, at Be'eri. I'm not going to, it's a kibbutz. I'm not going to probably pronounce it right. Be'eri, um, a lot of people killed 112. And uh, one of them was a 12-year-old named uh, Leel Hatzroni, an Israeli girl, and she died on this day, and no government officials attended the farewell ceremony. 
Well, eventually it comes out that uh, two Israelis who survived the blast, one of them is named Yasmin Porat, and she was with this, uh, this little girl for several hours in the house, guarded by fighters who treated them humanely and whose objective was to kidnap us to Gaza, not to murder us, she said. So, uh, you know, they later described that this girl was killed, uh, I believe, by... Um, they fired two shells into the into that home, right? And then that's how yeah. she died, the little girl. But up to that point, she was being treated well by Hamas, and they were or they were not being mistreated. They were being, and they were told that they were to be taken as hostages. Which makes me think, and when you hear the reports of the hostages that they were actually treated well, uh, and that to the point that Israel doesn't let them talk to the media, and then you think about what they were trying to accomplish with this. Would a massacre have been in the interests of, of Hamas and the Palestinians? You know, I mean, of course, the other side would say, well, they're so irrational and murderous. You see, they just want to kill everyone. But it, it's a it's have you been even following this probably as closely as me as, or if not closer, Bryce, what do you what do you think of this? All right. Well, I mean, this is, uh, you know, one uh, of the most recent of a long series of reports uh, examining largely Israeli media reports that do demonstrate uh, this. Uh, this trend of people talking about how Israel is actually massacring its own civilians, or at least killing some uh, in large numbers. Uh, this woman, Yasmin Porat, she was actually one of the first in indications of this. Uh, her interview with the Israeli state broadcaster um, was picked up by uh, Electronic Intifada, where she talks about how uh, uh, Israel was just firing indiscriminately into people, and uh, someone she was with who was also taken hostage by Hamas, uh, was was killed. Um, we've this also includes uh, reports of the Apache helicopters, which are called on uh, at least uh, more than one kibbutz, um, uh, where these you know these helicopter pilots were told to you know to fire, and they emptied their entire their all of their ammunition, and then went back to go get more on uh, targets that they couldn't distinguish. Uh, they they couldn't distinguish between uh, uh, you know terrorist or uh, randos or Hamas militants or even Israeli soldiers. And uh, one of the major facts of this case is that uh, initial reports, I'm sure everyone remembers, were of 1,400 Israelis killed. Uh, that was later revised down to 1,200 uh, because there were 200 bodies that were so burnt up, Israel couldn't tell whose they were, and they assumed that they were theirs. Uh, the question, how did these bodies get burned up? Well, uh, unless Hamas you know, walked into Gaza or walked out of Gaza with flamethrowers and like Apache helicopters and, uh, you know, weapons that no one has ever seen them use. It seems pretty clear where those bodies were burned. And if Israel can't distinguish 200, how do we know about any of the others? And I've, I've been looking at the the victims database uh, published by uh, Aretz. And what's interesting, and uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, but um, uh, about a quarter of the names, about 300, 350 of them, they don't have ages associated with them. Uh, I'm, and I'm not sure why, because uh, if you look at the, uh, you know, the the propaganda of the, the 40 beheaded babies, obviously that was like nonsense. Um, but if you look at the whole of the named and pe people given age, uh, ages to them, there, it turned out to be only like uh, 29 people under 18 who were killed and named. And uh, given ages, uh, so this is just one more piece of the puzzle, in a sense, uh, of this dismantling the official narrative of what happened on ten seven. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, there, there are several other instances. Max Blumenthal actually published an article. Uh, I'm sure you saw that one there. And um, uh, covering a lot of this similar evidence. Uh, but uh, the the Israeli daily uh, Aretz, they published an attack on Max Blumenthal saying that, oh, he's just taking this out of context and that he's uh, uh, he doesn't understand. And he's uh, omitted critical words in the text to say something that the text didn't say. Uh, if you read both Blumenthal's article and you read Aretz, um, it's pretty clear that Aretz acknowledges that Israel killed an unknown number of its civilians, although it calls those, you know, outliers rather than the, uh, it, it, it accuses Max Blumenthal of focusing on the outliers rather than the grand scheme of Hamas's, uh, you know, brutal terrorist attack. Uh, but if you look at what Blumenthal says, he never says that Hamas never killed anyone. He never says the. Uh, he never says that. Um, uh, you know that the, there were no civilian casualties caused by Palestinians. He's just pointing out the large number of the large body of evidence that points to Israeli killing their own civilians, and it's an unknown number. We have no idea how many, but there is an indication that uh, even if there were civilians killed, uh, Hamas actually killing them was a minority. It, it seems e even if you accept that all of the civilians killed were by Hamas and that it was intentional. Well, I, don't think, I don't think anybody's really going to argue that no, at this point. No one believes that. But even if you accept that, the numbers uh, demonstrate pretty clearly that there's a bigger case for this being a military operation than what Israel's currently doing in Gaza. I mean, uh, it sure did achieve some military success for something that wasn't a military operation, if that's what the argument is. I mean, it's... A exactly, exactly. Uh, but then, I mean, just going deeper, like one... Report that I keep bringing up was one from Middle East Eye uh, a, a few weeks ago, and it used sources in uh, in Gaza uh, who are uh, affiliated with Hamas uh, that said that Hamas was actually extremely surprised at the success of their military operation. They had only expected to take twenty to thirty hostages, but they ended up with hundreds of them. Um, and another part of that report said that it wasn't just Hamas. Who entered the Gaza Strip? There was there's also other uh, militant groups on the Strip. There was also just regular people in Gaza who found a hole in their concentration camp fence and uh, decided to take advantage of it. And who knows what they did? But uh, if they did something, then uh, you can't credibly call that Hamas doing that. Uh, one of the sources from Gaza said that uh, Hamas sent in fourteen hundred soldiers and they came back with 1300 that doesn't sync up with the numbers that israel was telling us that they killed of hamas so either they were wildly overestimating the numbers of hamas militants killed uh or they were killing a lot of other uh random people who just so happened to filter out of the gaza strip or they were including their own people in uh in that tally it's very difficult to say but this piece from uh, The Cradle is uh, very good. Um, uh, this author, William Van, uh, Van Wagnen, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but he's, he's actually uh, out of the Libertarian Institute, and he has published a lot of work there. And he's covered uh, Syria and Libya and the war propaganda that surrounds them. Uh, they're, they're very interesting articles. They're very in-depth, almost book-length, to be honest. Uh, I recommend going to check out those if and when you get the chance. You know, what I would say about it is... Stop and think about it from the perspective of like on that night, 
I mean, Hamas has issued statements, as I understand it, to the effect that they were not seeking to attack civilians. Now, the press can be say, well, is not going to say, well, you're lying, you're Hamas, you know, you're, you're terrorists, yada, yada. We can expect them to say that. But if you are a terrorist group, you want you don't really want to not be claiming your you want to be claiming your cause was the reason for what you were doing. I mean, that's a that's a part of it. So there's reason to you know wonder why that they would be saying that was the case if you're Hamas, why they would be saying it if it wasn't true. The other part of it is think about it if if what I'm saying is if that the military logic or the and the political logic of going into launching this attack on Israeli military facilities that have been keeping Gaza down, of course, maintaining the concentration camp conditions that are not pleasant, they're horrific, um, that you would, okay, you would attack them. And if you, you would want to take hostages back, and if you did that, that would actually be quite a victory because you'd be taking on the military and you'd be showing that the military isn't invincible. You'd be bringing hostages back to Gaza. So if they started, if they really came after them, it would be quite a bloody mess. I mean, if you're Israel and you may and you realize that that is in the offing and you've already got the Hannibal directive because of the same kind of logic, only now it's something that would be much more powerful than what it was in the first place that led you to create the Hannibal directive. I mean, the Hannibal directive shows the thinking of the Israelis. If Hamas did just launch a military operation and then plan to take a bunch of hostages back, which would be tactically the more sensible thing to do. What would Israel have done at that moment, realizing that that was a foot? If they had just, if Israel had just let those people go back to Hamas or to, to Gaza and take all those hostages back, and then the, the vast majority of the casualties would have been military, mm -hmm. that would have been an enormous victory for, uh, for the Palestinians, for, the, for Hamas and for, Pal for Palestine in general, to be honest. Yeah. Um, like, and so you can see why Israel would have done what some people s suggest may have happened if it like not by not fog of war but like they have the hannibal directive like they there's a logic there for what happened that doesn't suggest an accident or fog of war which isn't just i mean i'm not saying that i know that that's what happened but there's the logic of it on all sides would make sense like it, you understand why hamas would do this and then you understand why israel would be like, just kill everybody. Don't let them take any more hostages back. Right. It doesn't matter. It's better to have a, a, a lot of people killed because we'll just say we'll just say it was uh, the Palestinians that did it in their attack rather than letting them have have this enormous victory. Right. And the the fog of war and the Hannibal directive aren't mutually exclusive, uh, yeah. especially when you consider like the people on the ground. Like you saw the pictures of the like those two girls and the tank. Uh, and they were firing. I can't remember which kibitz it was, but they were just like firing indiscriminately. They had barely operated that machinery before, but they were told by their superiors, just go in uh, and uh, uh, just go, go guns a blazing. And, uh, you know, it turns out this was an area where there were civilian casualties caused by collapsed buildings and, uh, you know, bodies torn to pieces, ripped to shreds. Uh, these girls probably had no idea, but her superiors probably did. They probably understood that, well, you know, if we send in these these little kids in there and to go blow up these, you know, I, I call them kids, but they're adults. They're, they're old enough to know, like, you know, take responsibility for their actions. They're like 24. They're like, they're my age. Like I'm, I'm an adult, uh, but these, the, but they have no idea what's going on in the grand scheme of things. They're, they're probably still uh, deep within the Israeli nationalist propaganda. They uh, probably haven't, uh, you know, thought critically about their situation. 
and they trust their superiors. Uh, but their superiors are, understand the realities of war and, you know, the, the hard decisions that are needed to, uh, you know, achieve victory in this colonial campaign. And so they they took action. Yeah. Now, I want to take getting away from this slightly. I want to look at some of these the geopolitical implications of this, because a lot of people, you know, some, an event like this happens and your geopolitical masterminds on the Internet and, and such, uh, you know, they like to come out and, and say that they know they or they see all the angles and they'll tell you what's happening. And uh, a lot of it is it's confusing, to be honest, to try to to try to figure these things out. But Mint Press News has put up uh, some useful. Uh, they've made some useful little photos here, uh, little memes. I don't know what you want to how you want to classify these. They're useful on you on YouTube uh, as sort of like put little mini posters uh, of whatever mm -hmm. they want to talk about. Now, they're this nice. Is... I wish they had sources uh, linked that you could like click and link to them, though. Uh, yeah, you know, part of it, I think, is inst is the way that Insta I think they should put them in the comments. It's an easier thing to do uh, all the time. But, you know, Instagram also does stuff where they like will de boost you if you put links and stuff. It it's oh, I hate really? social media uh, monopolies. They suck so much. They, yeah. they're, they're so not about the user now. But the here on this one, this photograph is, I think, really important in terms of understanding potentially what. The, what the hell the ne the neocons have failed in all of their crazy bigger ventures and the neocons are the more you know right-wing imperialist part of the u.s establishment but also in alliance with um hardline zionists like people like netanyahu i mean that was really emerging of for u.s and, and israeli foreign policy as part of what takes place under george bush and had been sort of articulated in the beginning in the clinton era you know the clean break strategy combined with project for a new american century like these are all like man we're going for it now they've all failed in uh with the Af the, Af the war in afghanistan uh this the syrian war turned into the, what the ridiculous thing that it is now where the u.s where people were like it's not a u.s operation it's real it's real and like here we are 2023 the u.s is occupying a third of the country i mean the stupidity of the people especially on the left who did not see what the syrian war was at the time it's pathetic it is so pathetic uh, that they that still you can look at Ukraine and what's happening now. You can look at Syria and it's what I, people like me were saying all along. These are U.S. regime change operations and the U.S. is responsible for all this. And it's so obvious now, but they failed everywhere. Now, you wonder what is the, the end game with with Gaza? Some people are saying, oh, the U.S. is doing this to start World War Three. But other people are thinking that that would not seem to be in the interest of the United States. But I would bet that it's in the interest of some of the crazies in the United States because they just keep they all they do is just try to push in different areas. And if one scheme fails, then like, well, that's just a, a new set of facts to look at while we go move on to the next insane scheme. And that's the way it's gone for most of the 21st century in the U.S. It's been a, a series of debacles. But this version of it is like in terms of trying to deal with the bricks and everything else, this seems to be the pipe dream is this India, Middle East, Europe corridor uh, as an alternative to like the, the BRICS and the Belt and Road Initiative. And it also involves, so it, you would, it would be a way to have uh, it, India, which is the main kind of a problem with the BRICS is that India seems to be more wanting to be more aligned with the US uh, because they want to balance against um, China. And so this puts them 
in a position where the U.S. can exploit this, which they will, not to India's benefit in the long run if India is really going to be smart, I think. But so you see the way that they would like to do this, and it would be a way to go from the tip of the Arabian Peninsula through Saudi Arabia uh, with a terminal in Israel, and then goes to the Mediterranean Sea and connect to Greece. And another part of this, that's sort of a side thing here, is um, construction of a canal through Israel and Gaza, a waterway to rival and undermine Egypt's Suez Canal. And you can see on the map there where that would go. So that would be potentially a maritime version of, of this uh, India, Middle East, Europe corridor. And uh, this would be, and, and of course in Gaza, as you see here in this little, uh, in, in the picture of Israel, where, where Gaza is, Israel, Palestine, Israel is on the map and Gaza's there. There's a lot of gas off the shore there that would be useful to be able to transport to Europe. So there's a lot of things here that I would guess that the, the, the more hardcore Zionists and their friends in, in the U.S. national security establishment uh, that these people would be thinking that like this may be what their pipe dream really is. Uh, you know, Israel in control of all those gas fields, the people of Gaza forced to flee into the Sinai desert seems to be like a series of like uh, campaigns in, in the West Bank that they're trying to get away with. I mean, is this what they are going for in in terms of trying to start start a regional a regional war that might facilitate this or or what i don't think the u.s wants a bigger war what do you what are you thinking that the u.s establishment is trying to get out of this i actually think if they're if they're not totally insane they're trying to somehow figure out a way to restrain israel and maybe that's why the media coverage has been a little more even-handed than we might have guessed in some ways here we go. It seems that they are trying in some way to not restrain Israel. I mean, they're giving them light taps saying like, oh, you know, please. Uh, I think Blinken said like uh, when Israel was talking about larger plans uh, for uh, like a big invasion of southern Gaza, Blinken's response was that uh, you don't have the credit for that. Uh, like, I don't think you have the credit for that, which wasn't like a don't do it, but it was like a this will be very difficult for both of us on a public relations front uh, if you proceed with this. And like Pub we, publicly. We yeah, well, yeah, yeah publicly. That's we don't like, know what they're saying behind the scenes. Yeah, well, behind the scenes, it also seems like uh, they don't they simply don't care because I mean, like publicly, they're also giving them all the money, which is, well, as everyone knows, the, the linchpin in all of this. Israel yeah. can't operate unless they have this flow of U.S. support, uh, material support. They, they might be able to do it without the political support as long as there's no active opposition. But, uh, you know, the, the material support is really what where Israel gets its, its bread is butter. I can't remember the exact percentage, but like that Israel aid per year, that four billion uh, to say nothing of the extra 14 billion that uh, will be coming soon, most likely. But that four billion is a significant chunk of Israel's yearly military budget. Like it, It's no small matter. Yeah. And, but, and they rely on that. Uh, because that also allows them to subsidize other areas of their, you know, imperial project. You uh, can go into settlements, you can go into, you know, every dollar you give them for military is a dollar that they're not spending in their military that they can then spend elsewhere. And of course, healthcare. It, it, I think they, I think they actually have national healthcare. Oh yeah. 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 Because uh, it must you know, be so nice for them. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, America paying for Israel's national health care. But I mean, uh, that's you, you've got to think that that's kind of what it amounts to. Uh, yeah, that's it's exactly what's going on. 
But I don't uh, think they could afford. They couldn't afford that if they had to defend. Them, but I don't even think they could afford to defend themselves anyway. Like well, I mean, it, it, they couldn't afford of, that. But they couldn't afford the health plan. But they couldn't afford anything really yeah. if it wasn't for the U.S. <laughs> but yeah, they couldn't afford to not be just jumped by every other country that they threaten and bomb. Like they they bomb Syria on a regular basis while the U.S. is occupying a third of the country. That passes completely without comment in the Western press. Uh, you know, occasionally they'll be like, "Oh, you know, Syria just got bombed." Interesting. Oh, yeah, we're still there. Uh, move on. But in terms of the, the larger U.S. machinations in the region, the, this seems like a, a pet project of a few people, uh, like, you know, a few a few specific interests. But there are other more, uh, uh, you know, more realistic people who understand that supporting Israel, especially in what they're doing now, is like com completely harmful. To any long-term U.S. plan, no matter what pipeline you you manage to get, no matter what canal you might manage to get, uh, and those things aren't nothing. But uh, you can't run a global empire if the entire world hates you and no, is no. actively opposed to you. And you can't. The U.S. is going to slowly learn. The U.S. is going to learn that lesson, man. They just—it's happening now, and they just don't. I hope that they learn in time to avert disaster or more. Dis I won't even say to avert disaster. We've already, there's already been many, many disasters. To avert more disasters than we have to suffer. The great finding out continues. It is. That's that's just it. That's it, it's really something. It, it is an amazing era. And uh, next week we'll talk about Ukraine uh, in the next episode because I don't want to get it. It's too. It's, we've gone for quite a bit today uh, with this one. So the next time around we're going to get into the Ukraine and I, and look at how the establishment is talking about that. But it's the similar thing. They are living in a fantasy world uh, and, and they're just, it's the Karl Rove thing. They, the idea that we're an empire, we create our own reality mm -hmm. and we're the actors in history. We're going to act and you, we're going to respond and you nerds can study all the things we did. That mentality <laughs> still prevails and it is, it, we see where that has gotten us. And so uh, next week we'll have this funny conversation. It's not funny. It's like, very strange and uh, obscene kind of uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Foreign Affairs magazine. So we'll talk about that in Ukraine. It's just more of the same. The there's they are really getting the the long and the short of it is the U.S. Empire and and Western imperialism as a whole. The white team on the devil's chessboard, we could call them. <laughs> they are getting their asses kicked, and they cannot possibly uh, turn it around. I don't, I don't think there's there's no gambit. They can't like do a, a you know an opposant that nobody expected and like <laughs> like they're done I think, but like how are they going to take it? This is this is the question. There's no there's no hidden check. There's no there, there's no secret master plan. No, like it's now or never in terms of getting on a reasonable path. We'll see yeah. how they handle it. The white king is in danger, uh, <laughs> and that is really I think the rest of the world for the rest of the world. Uh, it, it can't come too soon. For, uh, That's a good title to the to uh, to our next uh, episode about Ukraine. The White King is in danger. <laughs> save the White King! <laughs> All hands on deck. <laughs> I mean, save Whitey. I don't. This is like, why don't we should we really shouldn't be thinking in these terms? We should really be thinking about the brotherhood of humanity and solving problems. But I don't even know. It's like I say it. It's pretty. I think it's most people would agree. But here we are. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it always gives me hope to just like watch what the Chinese are doing or and saying. I'm like, you know, this is exactly what they told us that the U.S. was doing around the world, just like acting as a st stable force, not getting too involved, 
treating everyone with the same level of respect, knowing that you can only solve big problems if we all, you know, work together. And, uh, you know, even the, the get rich uh, mentality, but with like a friendly face, like giving to the people, like they actually have that there. It's, it's it's like it's 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 eerie. It's a, it's a this is a very interesting time to live in, and we're well, we should we'll revisit that sooner. We should get Amanda on here to talk about China too, because that'd be Absolutely. an interesting program. So, uh, right now we're gonna end this, and I'm gonna sign off in a bit. But Brace, thanks very much. Uh, it was great to have you back, and we'll we'll have you back soon. All right, take it easy. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to Devil's Chess Club and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. And please check out fordietrying.com. These were four leaders who got taken out of the game. Uh, they were on the same quest for peace and justice. They had to pursue this as though they were part of a democratic society, but their enemies were essentially fascists. If they can't win the day through our rigged democracy, they can just murder their enemies. But now... Even after having spilled so much blood, the empire is in a very weak position. Are we witnessing the end game on the devil's chessboard?